This morning, as we talk about, continue our, our series through Joshua, we're talking about God's work. And a lot of the songs this morning were about God's work. The, the two missions presentation, that, that's all about God's work and what God is doing. And are we going to be part of what God is doing? Or are we going to sit and watch what God is doing? And there's a difference there because God wants His people to act and, and be part of what He's doing. And in chapter 6 of Joshua, we finally get to some action. You know, up until now, it's been preparation and setting the scene, all very intentional. As God, two weeks ago, as we talked, God cares more about our heart than our plans. And so God uses events and circumstances to shape our hearts so that we can be tools for Him and vessels for Him. But in Joshua 6, we come to Jericho. And the story of the, the fall of Jericho. And, and what's the first thing that comes to mind? Veggie tales. Okay. <laughs> Keep walking, but you won't knock down our wall. No, okay, that's veggie tales. What was that? What? Rahab. Rahab, okay. And we talked about her in chapter 2. A whole chapter dedicated to the seemingly nobody who we found out God changed into a somebody through his hand. Rahab shows up again in this chapter. But what else do you think about? Any kids' songs? What was that? The walls come tumbling down. We used to sing songs like that. Um, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, which actually he didn't, as we're going to see today. But all of these things come to mind because it's a familiar story we hear as a child. And, and as Pastor Andrew and I were talking this week, one of the things that, that he really wanted to, to express was that this wasn't a fairy tale. This is something that happened in, it really happened. This is history. It happens in the sequence of history that we're studying in Joshua 6. And so it's not that God said to shout, and they shouted, I'm going to huff and puff and blow your house down. This isn't a fairy tale. This is that they obeyed God, and God acted to do His work on behalf of His people. And so we come to Joshua chapter 6, and we want to study this and learn from this, this familiar story that hopefully in the context of history we'll understand a little better as a call to our obedience, a call to action for us to follow God. We want to start by talking a little bit about Jericho. And, and again, I said we'd use some maps and some pictures, and we get to do that this morning just because it's really fun. Um, but it helps us understand the city of Joshua... Uh, the city of Joshua. The city of Jericho is one that we saw was just past the, the Jordan River. So Jericho's right here. And the children of Israel, reminder, came north up through here and fought some battles here. They crossed the Jordan and they've been here at Gilgal. And they're about to go into Jericho. Now Jericho is an interesting city. One of the things that they claim is that it's one of the oldest cities on the face of the earth which is an interesting claim. That comes back to this picture, which Andrew took. Um, they say the oldest city on, in the world, 10,000 years old, and some of the archaeological digs have gone back that far. It's called the City of Palms, and you see some palm trees there, um, about 825 feet below sea level. But what's interesting about Jericho, and, and why God brought them there possibly, is Jericho was a guardian city to the east for Jerusalem and the hill country. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked that this is the Rift Valley. This is some of the lowest places on earth. But then here we have a mountain range with Jerusalem right about here. If I can hold that straight. And, and the mountain range had uh, peoples that they were going to fight first 
And if you were going to get to the interior, you came through Jericho. It was a city by the major route going up into the, the highlands. This is a, a picture that helps us understand that before. Tell us, Sultan right here is um, the modern-day name for Jericho. So Jericho is down here. Jordan River is down here. And do you see the terrain coming west? It goes up dramatically. These are hills, almost cliffs at times. And then it rises up through this wilderness and eventually gets to Jerusalem and the hill country over there. So you can, you can tell right there. And so this was a city that was important from a military standpoint. It, got, it guarded three routes actually up into the hills, but one of them went straight up to Jerusalem. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Where was he traveling? He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, somewhere right through this area. And so you can see a little bit of the terrain that he was robbed in and how the robbers could have hidden and, and captured him. This was a military fortress, Jericho was, built to defend the eastern approach into the land. One author said it crowned an impressive mound that rose steeply from the adjacent wadi, and a wadi is a wash, sort of a dry riverbed, from the adjacent wadi, um, all, alongside which also passed the road, going up, which was the major route into the interior. interior. Another author said Jericho was easily defended and well-nigh impregnable. So we're going to start with the city that can't be taken. And that's where, where God starts them with this impossible task. The city that has high walls, it's built on a hill. And this is a, a great picture of it. And you can see this is a, a rebutment wall or a retaining wall that they built up. And they built the city on the hill because if you had height, you had a military advantage. You also could see everywhere around. It also made it very, very difficult to take because how do, you, how do you breach these walls? How do you get equipment up there, which the Israelites didn't have? They had something a little better. And so this was Jericho and the idea of the Jericho that they were going to take. A couple of other pictures. Um, this is an aerial view of Tel El Sultan, um, which is this area was ancient Jericho. Um, Jericho is one of the most... Um, archaeologically dug sites other than Jerusalem in the land. Give us another picture from the side. This is from the, um, from the west looking east, so the Jordan would be back here. Um, this was Jericho, and it's a little um, lower today because of erosion, and also the walls aren't there. And so that gives us an idea of this city and the task that they had. The size of the city, and it's important to understand that as we um, hear the story, uh, the size they estimate inside the inner wall, inside this inner wall, and remember that it was a double wall system, and at, t at places they built um, platforms between the two walls and built houses. That's probably where Rahab lived. Inside this inner wall was five to six acres. This outer wall was about, inside that was about ten acres. That sound like a lot? Now, to give you a frame of reference, the property of village here, our campus is about two and a half acres. And so this city wasn't the size of Garden Grove or Anaheim. This city was about four times, if you go with the outer walls, four times the size of village. And so that gives us an understanding. But on a hill, high walls, military outpost, no one was going to take this city. At least that's what they thought. 
One other interesting thing is they've done digs and found different things. They, they dig these holes, and then there's these walls called balks. And in the balk, I don't know whether you can see it. Do you see these? Um, those are pots that they found that still had grain in them. And interestingly enough, charred grain. And they found a number of evidences of fire. And as they've unearthed the walls, they found evidence that the walls somehow collapsed. Somehow. I love it when archaeology supports what God's Word says. We know God's Word is true. Um, and so that's some of the things that they found. Um, there was still grain there, because if you remember when all this is happening, it's right after the harvest. We talked about that with the Jordan River. And so it would have been full of grain. And it also shows that they didn't just leave on their own accord, that something catastrophic happened to where all of their items were burned and destroyed right in place. All of that to remind ourselves that this is actual history. This is what God did with his people to accomplish his work. So let's turn to Joshua 6, now that we have a little bit of a background of the lay of the land. Joshua chapter 6. And we'll go through the story of the conquest of Jericho. It's the, the most detail out of any battle is given to, to Jericho as all the events leading up to it and this, because it sets the tone for God's work. It sets the tone for how God is going to help the people take the land. And this morning, what I'd like to do is, is, like we've done before, just go through the story. Talk through the story, and at the end, pull out a couple of things that we can apply out of the story. But the story is broken up into several sections. The first section is in verses 1 through 7. And it's God's strange instructions are given and passed on to the people. God's strange instructions are given and passed on to the people. Let's read together, starting at verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And this is a, a narrator's insertion that re reminds ourselves of the circumstances. They were prepared for a siege. They shut the gates. No one's in or out, reminding us that this is an impregnable fortress. They are going to have a hard time taking it. It wasn't going to be easy, at least not for human hands. And so then he goes on in verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And I love that verse, the first verse, and this is probably a continuation of the commander that he met at the end of chapter 5 that we saw a couple weeks ago. The commander of the Lord's army is saying this, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. What would we expect that to say? We'll give. Good job, whoever said that. We, in our terms, we'd say, see, I will give. And that implies that the battle is still going to happen. The tense of the verb here is the perfect tense, which is very specific. This is already completed. And the results are still continuing. What a great way to describe God's work. He's already fought the battle. He's already won the battle. To him, this is, the people aren't a problem. The walls aren't a problem. He's using this for another reason to teach his people obedience. It's a challenge. Challenge to them. Do they believe this statement enough to follow these strange instructions? Do they believe God has already fought the battle and that God will give them this city? And that's a challenge for us. Do we believe God's word and his power and his strength? We go on, verse 3, and we get to the instructions here. And this is the brilliant military plan. You shall march around the city, 
all the men of war going around the city once. Lots of debate of how many people this is. All the men of war could have been up to 600,000, probably more like four or 500,000 here, but a lot of men. They're going to go up around the city and you'll march around it once. Thus shall you do for six days. And I could see Joshua thinking, this is really bizarre. I'm to get everyone together. We're to get in line, march around the city, and we're to do that every day for six days? But it's what God said to do. He didn't need to understand it. He needed to just follow it. So there's to do that for six days. Verse 4. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the pre- will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. It's interesting because time is being spent on the instructions. The strange instructions of the Lord. In verse 4 there, he talks about seven priests and they're to, to blow the, or bear these seven trumpets of ram's horns or shafars before the ark. And on the seventh day, you'll march around the city seven times. And the word, the, the number seven keeps coming up because that's a sign of perfection or completion. That this is going to complete God's work against the city of Jericho. On the seventh day, seven priests, seven horns, and God will work. It's interesting that the horns are used because we'll find out as we, we talk about it that everyone is to, to be quiet as they go around. And as they, they march around the city, they're told that the only sound you will hear is these horns blowing. And for, for them, the horns were used on, on specific occasions. The shafar, and this is a shafar, thank you, to Carl and Kathleen for letting us borrow your shafar. The shafar was used as a call to worship. And so as the people were, were called to worship the king, the shafar was blown to remind them that, that this was a call to worship. It was used in celebrations. And so during a feast or a festival, you'd have shafars blowing throughout that festival. It was also used as a war cry. And so they used this for a lot of different reasons. But this announced the coming of the king. And this preceded the Ark of the Covenant, which remember from a couple weeks ago, signified the presence of the king. And so they were blowing the horns before the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God Almighty. And this is symbolic that God is with them and that the king is here. And the king is fighting this battle. And I can just imagine being inside the city of Jericho watching this happen. And, 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 and knowing that they've crossed the Jordan, we already know from the text in prior chapters that they're in fear and trembling. They're on their knees wondering what's going to happen. And this people come and they come around the camp and they march around the camp. Now keep in mind the size of the city. And if, and if you go down from the slope a little bit where they were probably marching, a little bit bigger than, than 10 to 12 acres, but keep in mind the size of the city and, and 500,000 men. Even if you put two or three abreast, they're going to completely surround the city. And in fact, the word for marching around, uh, you, you march, you walk around the city, but then sometimes the word used is encircle the city or surround the city. 
So the people inside, day one comes, and they've surrounded the city, and they're like, what is going on? We're, we're done. And then they walk back to camp. This is a strange situation. God promises that the wall of the city on day seven, and not until day seven, will fall flat or collapse in on itself, fall down under itself. But those first six days seem like foolishness. But it's a reminder of 1 Corinthians one twenty-five that maybe the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What seems like foolishness to man is God's wisdom in how He's working and how He's challenging His people to obedience. This isn't the first time God's done something like that or, or the, this isn't the only time in God's Word that we see this. We saw Gideon. God whittled down his army to 300 men and gave them torches and pitchers, and they took a whole army. We saw it with David going up against Goliath with just a sling and some rocks. God specializes in situations where he does the work, where he gets the glory, where there is no question. So God gives these strange instructions to the people. We go on, and again, a lot of time is spent on now following the instructions. And point number two there, the people obeyed God and saw His awesome might. The people obeyed God and saw His awesome might. Even though these were strange instructions, I am so impressed that, that Joshua says, okay, let's do it. God said it, we will obey it, and the people followed I can just imagine some of the military guys saying, I don't know, we're walking around. But they followed. They obeyed. Pick it up at verse 8, the first day. and We break this down into several days. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, and, and the point of saying that is they followed it exactly. They followed it just like Joshua said. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And so we see this procession and, and Joshua divided it up and there's lots of debate. Well, how many were before the ark? How many were after the ark? We don't know. We know that he put some of the armed men, maybe most of the armed men before the ark, then the ark, but there was this rear guard, a, a, a whole bunch of armed men that followed it. And the key is the ark was in the center of this. This was about God's presence. This was about God's battle. This was his fight. And he tells them, no talking, keep silent, don't shout, another test of obedience. You get 500,000 people walking around and ask them not to talk? I have three kids. I try to get them not to talk. It's hard. But they obeyed. They showed self-control. They, they honored God's command. And so day one was about starting God's work. Stepping out in faith, whether they understood it or not. Engaging and obeying God to start His work. Wherever that may take them. 
to, to engage and to follow. Days 2 through 6 are interesting. We see that in 12 through 14. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into camp. So they did for six days. And notice, one of the things as we we deal with narrative and as we deal with passages of Scripture, you want to notice repeats. And when things are repeated, a, a, a number of these phrases have already been said, right? They were said about day one. They were said on the instructions of the Lord. That tells us what the focus of the passage is. That's how we get that this passage is about obedience because that's what they were focusing on. And so day day two, what do they do? Exactly the same thing as day one. Day three comes along and they get up and what do they do? Exactly the same thing as day two. Day four comes along and what do they do? Exactly the same thing as day three. And, And God is asking them to obey persistently and faithfully whether they see results or not. They haven't seen anyone any rocks fall. They haven't seen the wall fall yet. And he's saying, obey me. A quote attributed to Albert Einstein, whether he actually said it or not, we don't know, but it's attributed to him as a definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But when God tells you to, it's not insanity, it's wisdom. Because God Almighty knows the plan. And He knows what He's doing. And He doesn't have to show us what that is. Because He is God and we are not. So those days two through six to me are an illustration of persistent obedience. Faithful obedience. It's the idea of continuing God's work. Even with no results. It's when we when you work in a ministry in the church and you're not even sure if the people that you're ministering to are being reached, and you continue because you're in days two through six. When you have a neighbor that you are trying to reach with the gospel and you're loving on them and building relationship with them and you just don't see any inroads, but we continue because it's days two through six. Some of you have been praying for loved ones to accept Christ for years, maybe even 20 or 30 years, continue. Be faithful. You never know when God is going to draw someone to Himself. You never know when God is going to work. So continue God's work. Then on day 7, we see God's work in perfect timing. On the seventh day, they rose early. And the narration here focuses in on this day. On the seventh day, they rose early. At the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city! So they're still in silence. And this day they go around, and they go around seven times. And we still see obedience. We see extra obedience on this last day. And the priests blew the trumpets. thought it would be fun to, to hear what that sounds like. Joshua, are you there? I tried to blow this. 
and it didn't make any sound. <laughs> so they're walking around the city, and on the seventh time, they hear something like this, but with seven trumpets. Close. That was the signal. That was the signal that it is time, and Joshua says to shout. Then we see some instructions that had probably been given earlier, but the, the narrator is putting them here. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That's a key phrase that is first introduced in Joshua in this verse. Devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And so God, back in Deuteronomy, had said, for, for a city that is devoted to me, a, a word that is used in the Hebrew, harem, and it's supposed to have this guttural H, but I just can't do that, so harem, um, this city was devoted to God or devoted to destruction. That's what that, the word meant both. It meant it was set apart for God's judgment. It was His possession. And so God says, don't take anything from it. And He's setting up chapter 7, what we're going to see next week. Everything in it that breathes will be killed. You'll burn the city. The only thing you take are the, the precious metals that go into the treasury of God's house. And so, but you, in verse 18, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And God is saying, obey me. Those are mine. If you take, I'm going to devote Israel to destruction in the same way. This is serious business. God's not messing around, and He never messes around with sin. He hates sin. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the city, the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And we get to the climax of the story. Verses 20 and 21. The battle's here. It's done. Because God's fighting the battle. How did those walls fall down? Was it something they did? Some have said, well, maybe if they stamped really, stomped really hard. Or maybe the, the sound waves from their voices somehow knocked down these walls. Well, the New Testament tells us how they were knocked down. In Hebrews 11.30, the... the Hall of Faith. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. This was an act of God. And their faith in God is what we see God responding to. Who's the hero here? Joshua? No. The army? No. They just walked around a, a ten-acre lot for seven days. The hero here is God. He did the work he gets the glory. 
And as they were around the city, and with, like I said, with an army this size, they probably surrounded the city. The walls fell down flat, and it says they just each from where they went, where they were, um, converged in on the city, and they obeyed God's word and destroyed everything in it. With an exception that we'll talk about next week. One of the things about Harem, and I want to spend just a, a brief moment on Harem. We don't have a, a a lot of time on a Sunday morning to really dig into this. There's articles that you can read. If you have an ESV study Bible, there's a great article in the introduction to Joshua on what devoted things meant. But like I said, Harem was to devote to the Lord. And it was that Yahweh owned these things. It was always tied to holiness. To, to That these people had defied God and rebelled against God. And so God said, then they are mine to judge. No one else's. They are mine. Some have used stories like this to say, see, God's a God of ethnic cleansing, of genocide. It's not what's going on here. Those are words we cannot use to describe what's going on here. For one thing, God never applies this to cities outside of the promised land. This is something that's applied to cities within the promised land only. And he has several purposes for why he's doing this. Harem is not something that we could ever claim. The crusades that tried to claim some similar things were completely in the wrong and sinful because they did not have a direct divine mandate from God. So God Himself as Creator, which means He owns it all, as Judge, which means He has the right to judge, He directly commands them to destroy these people in this city. It was a specific command by God at a specific time in judgment on a specific people living in a specific place. And all that's very important to understand and counter people that they say, well, God just wants to wipe out people. No, but God has the right to judge people. God has a right to purify the land. And so God gives two reasons for Haram in Scripture. And I just briefly cover these. The first is the sin of the people. The sin of the people. Turn back to Genesis 15, verse 16. Genesis 15, 16. And this is important to understand. In Genesis 15, 16, we read, in the fourth generation, and God is talking to Abraham here, okay? So this is back to the promise to Abraham. And Abraham has traveled through the land, and God is saying, this will be your land, you'll be back here. But he says this in Genesis 15, 16. In the fourth generation... Your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so God is is holding off destruction of these people to see what they will do. Well, He knows what they will do, but because their sin is still coming to fruition or it's coming to full measure, and at some point in time, this implies that their sin will come to full measure in the future. It will cross a line where God must judge it. He must judge it physically and He must judge it right then. And so with that verse and with other verses that we see in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, we know that God is judging them because of their wickedness. We talked about a little bit of what the people were like. The brutality and immorality was unsurpassed in our present knowledge of Eastern um, civilizations. It was reflected in their religious rites, in their ceremonies. Archaeologists 
have discovered evidence that there was um, child sacrifice being practiced on a regular basis, religious prostitution, snake worship. In Leviticus 18 and in Deuteronomy 18, descriptions of the land say that they were into magic and divination and incest and adultery and homosexual activity and bestiality. This was a people whose sin had come to full measure and God was not going to tolerate it any longer. And so God uses Israel as a hand of judgment against the Canaanites. Now keep in mind, every one of us in this room have sinned. Every one of us have sinned in a way that is rebellion against God, that drives us away from the presence of God, and deserves destruction. And so it's not just these people. And we know that if we don't come to God, and if we don't take it, if we don't accept His free gift of salvation, which He paid for with His blood on the cross, that we are destined for destruction just like the Canaanites. An eternity in hell apart from the presence of God. And so this isn't really that different from what we face. And this is a preview of the horrors of hell. So the sin of the people. The second reason that he gives in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, and turn there. Because again, you, you, if you are engaging people that don't know God and you're engaging people about the Bible, they're going to hit you with this probably. The second reason in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, that he gives for harem, for wiping this, wiping all living things out, is the holiness of Israel. The holiness of Israel. He wants to protect them from the untainted worship. He wants to protect, protection for the untainted worship of the Israelites in the land where God is settling them. Starting at verse 16 of Deuteronomy 20, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, that you shall devote them to complete destruction. You have all the ites that are listed there. Verse 18, That they may not teach you to do according to all of their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. And God knows if He leaves them, even if He leaves them at all and they intermarry, that it will pull the people of Israel away from God to their destruction. And He is setting up a holy people called unto Himself. And unfortunately, we know from God's Word that they didn't destroy everything and that they kept falling away and walking away from God and following the abominable practices of the area. But God is commanding this for the holiness of Israel. Keep in mind as we understand Harem that there were exceptions. Rahab, which is where he goes in the next section, reminding us of salvation. Sin leads to destruction. But those that follow God and show faith in God are saved to eternal life with Jesus Christ. And this story becomes a picture for us of salvation and God's work on the cross. And we read on to the rescue of Rahab and obedience. Verse 22, back to Joshua 6. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. 
And they brought all her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel, probably for, for ritual cleansing. And they burned the city with fire. This is the obedience. And everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she had lived in Israel to, she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent in to spy. And so in this passage about destruction, we have a significant amount of time spent on Rahab again. Someone that would have been the weakest of society, the dredge of society. A wretch like you and me. And God plucked her out and rescued her and saved her because she believed in Him. Picture of salvation. Finally, we get to the last two verses, the epilogue. Curse and fulfillment and glory. God keeps His word. In verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. Utter destruction we see there. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And we see a curse on the city of Jericho. And if I'll just read to you 1 Kings 16.34. In 1 Kings 16.34, we see the result of that curse. We see that God followed through on His Word and on this curse. Because we see someone rebuilding the city. And it doesn't say they can't rebuild the city. What does it say it will cost Him? His firstborn and His youngest son. In, and in 1 Kings 16.34, In the days of Heel, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho, He laid its foundation at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. See, God is faithful. And we like to think of that about blessings. And he is faithful for promises and blessings. He's also faithful in his promise to deal with sin and to judge sin. And so he was faithful to this curse And in the end, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. God was proclaimed. God was made known. In two minutes or less, what can we learn? And we want to look for timeless principles, because the story of Joshua isn't about identifying what battles we want to win in our lives and drawing a circle around it and praying and demanding that God do what we say. It's not about our plans. That's missing the entire story of Joshua, of Jericho. The first thing that we can learn is to engage. The Lord fights the battle to display His glory. The Lord fights the battle to display His glory. And what we're doing as we look for application is answering questions, what can I learn about God's character in this story? What can I learn about how God works and leads? What can I learn about following God? The Lord, we see a repeated phrase in 2 and 16, and we see it throughout the book. The Lord has given you the city in verse 2. In 16, the city that the Lord has given to us. 
Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God did. And so this is a lesson that says it's not about me. In fact, it's not all up to me. And doesn't that relieve a lot of stress in ministry and doing God's work? It's not up to you and I whether or not it succeeds. That's God's job. Our job is to obey. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4-7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Village family, we're the jars of clay. We're the broken pots. And God still works to show us how great He is. Because if He can work through me, and if He can work through you, His power is on display as the great and almighty God. He gets the glory. They just marched and shouted. God did the work to this impregnable fortress. Second lesson, our responsibility is obedience, not commanding. Notice the amount of space that's given in this passage to the instructions and following of the instructions. Almost the entire chapter. How much space is given to the actual battle? Two verses. Because God did that. He's focusing on that He wants obedience from His people. And that's the same today. That's the timeless principle. God still wants us to obey Him. He wants us to engage, to move forward with His work, and to do it in obedience to Him. It's the quote that I love that Matt Chandler said that, that Joshua mentioned this morning. God is awesome. He doesn't need us to be awesome. He wants us to be obedient. That makes sense. That reminds us of what our real responsibility is. It's obedience. Do we believe Him enough to follow Him? Are we obeying Him? Are we faithful to that? Are we being faithful to the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Are we obeying that? That's how God works. Are we obeying the Great Commission? Where He says, as you're going, go and make disciples. This isn't an option. That's a command. If we're not doing that, we are in disobedience. Are we obeying His command to to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, to be dedicated to His church, to be building up the body by serving, as He says in Ephesians 4? Are we obeying His commands personally and trusting Him that I can love and I can respect my spouse whether or not I see it paying off? That I can trust Him with my future whether or not I know where I'm going to college? That I can trust Him with my purity and not fall into the world's trap of saying, well, you got to try the person out. Make sure they fit before you, you get married. Do I trust God that He can work out the future if I simply obey today? And that's challenging. Hudson Taylor had th- words about following God. He said there's three different ways to serve the Lord. First, I can make the best plans I can and hope they succeed. Second, I can make my own plans and ask God to bless them, which I think is where we often fall. He said, or three, I can ask God for His plans and then do what He tells me to do. I pray that number three is where we're at. God routinely takes small steps of obedience 
or it asks us to take small steps of obedience and use them for his mighty works. The last lesson there that we'll talk much more about next week, God hates sin, but in his great love offers mercy. God hates sin, harem. These are devoted to me, wipe them out. But in his great love, he offers mercy, Rahab. And that same offer is available for you and I this morning. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, you're devoted to destruction because you're in rebellion to God. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ and repented on your sin, and if you, if you haven't done that, today's the day. And I plead with you to make today that day that you will no longer be, be devoted to destruction, harem, but that you will be a child of God like Rahab began, became. And it starts with admitting our sin and saying, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin and that he rose from the, the dead on the third day to give me new life. That's the good news. I plead with you today to make sure you've made that commitment. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, it's a familiar story but a story that should deeply challenge us to obedience, to following what you say, whether we understand it or not, whether it's our plans or not, to accept your plans and to see how they display your power and your glory. But I pray that we would be a people that are stepping out to walk around a city, whether we understand it or not, but we are stepping out to do your work and not just sit here. Use us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name.